Well, Revelation 3 is where we're at this morning, Revelation 3. We will take a break from Revelation starting next week. We'll do a Christmas series called Gifts from a King, and we'll look at joy and peace and hope and these sorts of classic Christmas virtues uh, through the three Sundays leading up to Christmas and Christmas Day, as well as a Christmas Eve night. So I'm looking forward to that, and we'll be back to Revelation in chapter 4 once the new year hits. Uh, But it's a perfect stopping place because chapter 3 is this great division, really. It's kind of its own section. And chapter 4 starts a new section. So today we round out chapters 2 and 3, which are these seven different letters to seven different churches. So we have our last, our seventh letter uh, to the church at Philadelphia. So when it's the church at Philadelphia, uh, this is a beautiful letter. And it's, it's actually unique because there are no condemnations There's no criticism of the church. There's actually all praise and promises. And I should note, when we say Philadelphia, we're not talking about modern-day Philadelphia that's across the state, right? We're talking about ancient Philadelphia. Uh, We know that this is not talking about modern Philadelphia because, of course, it wasn't founded yet, but also because who would say something praiseworthy of modern Philadelphia, right? This is all praise, modern Philadelphia. That's worth applauding for. We're from Pittsburgh. We know this. We know this, right? The Flyers are the devil's team. Uh, They throw snowballs at Santa, who does that? They can't even take care of their bells, right? They drop them and crack them, like just crazy people. So, of course, I'm from Kentucky where we marry our cousins. So I didn't do that, but people do. And so throwing snowballs at Santa is actually not that bad. But it's not modern Philadelphia is the point I'm trying to make. It's ancient Philadelphia, and I want us to read this letter. It's, it's beautiful, but it's really complex, honestly. But we're going to understand it together, and we'll make sense of it, and we'll have a lot of fun while we do it. So here we go. Revelation 3, verse number 7. Unto the angel or the messenger or the pastor of the church in Philadelphia, write this. These things saith he, Jesus, that is holy. So Jesus is the unique one, the set-apart one, the distinguished one. Jesus that is true. Not meaning the absence of lies, but meaning the authentic article, the genuine one, the real deal. These things saith he that hath the key of David, and openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept my word of patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown." Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Now, a few things you need to know about ancient Philadelphia for this letter to make sense and for you to get the context. So ancient Philadelphia is actually the newest city out of the seven churches that has a letter. Uh, by ancient standards, it, was, it hadn't been around a long time. This city, when the letter was written, had been around 260 years. 
Uh, to put that into comparison, that's newer than Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's older than that. And it was a city that was founded by Attalus II, also known as Attalus Philadelphus. Philadelphus or Philadelphia means brotherly love. And his nickname was Philadelphus because he loved his brother, uh, Eumenes II, a lot. So because this guy loved his brother, they called him brotherly love. And so he starts the city and they just named it after his nickname and they called it the city of brotherly love. This city, a few things you need to know about it, it was started as a, I would call it a missionary outpost. Not missionary in the sense of sharing the good news of Jesus, but understand during this time, which is the Hellenistic period of the Greek dynasty. What does that mean? Uh, Hellenization is is a big Greek word for the process by which the Greeks wanted to convert other cities, other kingdoms, and other cultures to their way of thinking. They wanted them to speak the Greek language. They wanted them to worship the Greek gods. They wanted them to adopt the Greek practices. They were actually very successful at this, so successful that by the time the apostles step onto the scene and begin to write the New Testament, they write the New Testament in Greek and most of the known world can read it because it become a worldwide language and there really never was a worldwide language before this. But Philadelphia was the city that was right on the edge, the border, of of the area that had been Hellenized or had really been converted to the Greek way of thinking. And just beyond Philadelphia to the east, it was kind of the wild, wild east, was these areas and these towns and these cultures that had not yet been taught the Greek language or had not yet adopted their culture. And they, they made it their goal to like culturalize the world and to reach beyond. So this city was started really as a missionary outpost. It was very successful, but it was pretty short-lived because there was a, an earthquake that happened just about 150 years into the city's history. It was actually, the earthquake would have been around the time that Jesus was a teenager. And this whole valley experienced a massive earthquake. There were 12 different cities that were dramatically affected, but Philadelphia was at the epicenter of this earthquake. And many of the people, instead of rebuilding the town because it was just demolished, instead of rebuilding, many of the people just left and went to places that were already established. Many of the people actually chose to move out of the city walls and to live there and kind of do commerce in the city, but they were scared that they would rebuild the pillars and the temples and these things would fall down and kill everybody again. So they they wanted to live away from it. But there was a remnant who was there who decided to tough it out and to grind it out and to rebuild the city. The rebuilding process was still happening when John wrote this letter to them. Last thing you need to know is that when they were rebuilding, uh, by the time this, this happened, the Greeks were no longer the, the ruling dynasty. The Romans had really taken over. And the Romans came along, although Philadelphia was an independent city, they came along and they offered help, especially Emperor Tiberius. And they chose to take aid and help and financing to be able to rebuild their city. And In exchange for that, Philadelphia voluntarily adopted a new name. They were known as Philadelphia, but they actually became known as Neo-Caesarea, which means new Caesar, in recognition that there was a new Caesar, Tiberius, who was there. Years later, actually just a very, very short period before John wrote this letter, there was another emperor who came along and offered them help yet again, Vespasian. And they adopted, once again, another new name, Flavia, 
in honor of this aid that they were getting. Now, you say, Pastor, thank you so much for the history lesson. I knew very little of that. What does that mean? The, the point is this. It would make sense when Jesus writes a letter to this church that he would talk about open doors and missionary opportunities, and we'll see that in a minute, because they were a missionary outpost. It would make sense that he would highlight their faithfulness and their grittiness because these were people that were grinding it out and were rebuilding the city. It makes sense if you read verse 12 that he would talk about these new names, new names, new names because the city had adopted these new names. So culturally, you have to get the context here for some of these words to jump off the page and make sense. But here's what you need to know about Philadelphia. There's four, four things that they're praised for, four things they get promises for. And if you get these four, you'll get the letter, okay? So here are the factors. The first factor of the four is the steady factor. This was a group of people in a church that was extremely stable. And here's what it says, verse number eight. I know thy works, and it goes on to say, you have little strength, and you've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Verse number 10 goes on to say, you have kept the word of my patience. Now, this is interesting. Verse number eight says they have little strength. Uh, the Greek word there is dynamos. You have little dynamite. That's where we get our word dynamite from. You have little power. There's little explosiveness to you. This means strength arising from riches, strength or power arising from influence or connections or even numbers. And Jesus actually, he's not criticizing them, but he's just noting what is true. He says, you are puny. Like you're not powerful. You have little strength. You have very little influence. You have very little financing. You have very little uh, numbers. There's not a lot going for you. You're not very explosive. You are a, a puny church, really. But, verse number 10, you have kept the word of my patience. There's not explosiveness, but there is stability, and there is durability, and you are a steady bunch of people. You are grinding it out. You are staying faithful, and what a word of encouragement for people that knew that they weren't this most powerful group of people in the city who would have definitely felt this, but they get this highlight of their stability. And I stepped back as I read this, and I thought to myself, I think that we all need this word of encouragement sometimes. Because while there are days where I feel very spiritually alive, like I wake up and feel like I just want to karate chop the devil, you know? I just, I want to go to church. I want to worship. I read my Bible and the words jump off the page. There's an equal number of days where I do not feel that way. Ever been there? Like I woke up and I mean, I haven't even had anything come at me today. But whatever comes at me, I know I'm not going to handle it well today. It's just one of those days. I read my Bible today and it's drudgery and I don't, I don't know that I really got anything from that. I went to pray and I'm tired and I fell asleep and I just don't feel like I, that I have a lot of offer. I don't feel like there's this explosive spiritual power, right? And I'm not diminishing the gospel. I'm not diminishing the Holy Spirit. I'm not diminishing God. But there are days where we feel this way. There was a church that certainly felt this way and it's in those moments that you have to know that while you may not be explosive, you can be steady. And that's attainable. 
Sometimes we begin to think of our spiritual lives as, you know what, there are these people, there are these missionaries, and there are these pastors, and there are these spiritual giants who've been at the Christian life a long time, and they're the real stalwarts, and they have it figured out, but I'm over here with the average people, and there's this giant gap between where I am and where God wants me to be, and I don't know that I can, that I can scale that gap, and so you don't even try. You kick it into neutral spiritually, and you tell yourself, where I am versus where I'm supposed to be, the gap's too big. I can't get there. I'm, I'm not the, the real spiritually powerful person, so I'm not even going to try. And that's unhealthy. What you should tell yourself is, you know what? I can do steady. I don't know if I'll be ever written about in the newspaper. I don't know if I'll ever do anything, quote, unquote, great for God. I don't know if I'll be a missionary. Or I, I don't know what, what that holds, but I know this. I can be steady. And we can, all, we can all do that. And this was a church that while they weren't powerful or explosive or had a lot of influence, they were a church that figured out that they could do steady. And you need to tell yourself that. You can do steady. As a matter of fact, look at the person next to them and just encourage them this morning and just say these words to them. Look at them and say, you can do steady. Go ahead. Do you feel encouraged? I don't know if you took those words to heart or not, okay? But there's truth to those words. Faithfulness is not something that a, a select few can do and you cannot attain to. There is, there is a gift in just being faithful. Being faithful in your spiritual walk, being faithful in every domain of life. Showing up to work on time with a consistent attitude is something you can do and something you should do. Being consistent and stable in your marriage or in your parenting is something you can do and you should do. Don't be guilty of love bombing your children or your spouse. You know what that is? Where you take your kids on vacation and you have a great time and you, and you love bomb them and then you're like, all right, I'll see you in four months. I'm gonna go to work and I'm gonna check out and I'm not gonna see you again. Where you take your spouse on a date because it's anniversary or it's uh, Valentine's Day and you have this, this, this great night and you take them to the marriage conference that, that Harvest offers you know, every February or March or whatever. You do that and then you're gone. And there's no more dates and there's no more love notes and there's no more words of affirmation. It's just, I love bomb you, I'm gone. Don't do that, it's not healthy. There's, there's a lot more to be said for just having family dinners consistently and praying together as a couple for five minutes every single day or three times a week and just being consistent and stable in your relationships and in your marriage and in your parenting and just showing up when you're supposed to. There's something to be said for that. It adds up over time. Little investments over a long period of time faithfully end up equaling something very powerful. This is why if you be begin investing at an early age, even if it's just a small amount of money, but you consistently take that amount of money out of your paycheck and you invest it or you save it, that by the time you get to be 50 or 60 or 70 years old, that will grow significantly because you did something little faithfully over the long period of time. Do this in your spiritual life. I've been around church a long time, and I've known a lot of people that are the church magi magicians. Ever met a church magician? Now you see me, now you don't. You ever met those people? Now you see me, and I'm here, and I'm ready to serve, and I'm all in, I want to do everything, and then a month later, now you don't. Where'd Bob go? Same place Bob always goes. He'll be back in five months. 
and then it'll be here for a month, and then it'll be gone for five months. That's not healthy. It's, it's far better to do half as much as you want to do, but to do it steadily and faithfully and consistently and just grind it out little by little by little. And Jesus commends this church and he tells them, look, you are faithful even if you are feeble. I know you're weak. I know you don't got a lot, but you are a faithful bunch of people. And listen to me, feebleness is no problem for the Lord if there's faithfulness. What did Paul say? Paul learned that the strength of God was made perfect in his weakness. In his weakness, in his feebleness, the strength of God could show up. And if you're faithful and consistent, God will help you. Remember that disciple Jesus had who was like unstable as water? The one who was emotionally volatile, who was always blurting out dumb stuff? the one who would take a sword and swing it at people's heads and chop off their ears. Remember that person, Peter? When Jesus met Peter, he wasn't Peter. When Jesus met Peter, he was Simon, son of Jonah. And he actually gave him a new name. He talks a lot about a new name here to the church of Philadelphia. Remember that account? Simon, I'm gonna call you Petros. I'm gonna call you Peter, which means stone or rock. Simon, I know you're crazy, but I'm going to make you stable. Simon, I know you're all over the place, but I'm going to make you a rock. Now, that process of turning Peter into a rock was a long, arduous, not-so-pretty process, but it happened in the end because where's Peter at the end of it? He's hanging upside down on a cross, being martyred for his faith, as consistent as can be. Did you know God can make you into a rock? Some of you just by nature of your upbringing or perhaps your personality, you, you tend to be steady Eddie, you tend to be consistent, you tend to be predictable, good for you. Some of you, you don't have that, but God can make you that. And I want you to know this, and I want you to even pray this this week. If that's not you, and you would say, you know what, my life is a bit squishier than it needs to be. I'm a bit less faithful than I need to be. I tend to crumple when the pressure comes and just jump ship faster than I should. If that's you, then pray this week. God, make me Petros. Make me a rock. Make me stable. Make me consistent. Make me the church at Philadelphia. I want to be a stable person. So there's a, there's a steady factor that they had, but there's also a suffering factor that they had. Look down in verse number eight. The end of the verse says, you have not denied my name. Now the implication is that there was pressure being put on these people to deny the name of Jesus. Now, we've already looked at this at the other letters to the churches, so I won't belabor it, but there was an immense amount of cultural pressure being put on people to deny the name of Jesus. Verse number nine talks a little bit about this. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. So, quick note, Jesus isn't being anti-Semitic at this moment. You know, Jesus was a Jewish man. He's pointing out that there are people who are culturally and nominally Jewish, but they're not really Jews. And the same thing could be said of Muslims or Christians or any of the rest of it. He's, he's not just hammering Jewish people here. If you read the letters, he also hammers the churches with similar language. But he's saying there, there's this group of people that the persecution or the pressure is coming from to deny my name, to walk away from Jesus to say he's not Messiah, he's not holy, he's not the faithful one, he's not the unique one. This is coming at you. 
and I'll make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Now here's the point. They were being tested to deny Jesus. This was coming their way. And it was from the religious crowd, which make note. When you want to live for Jesus, oftentimes the group that surprises you the most, that ostracizes you and makes fun of you and persecutes you, is the religious crowd. I've seen this time and time again, where someone comes to faith and they think that their coworker, who they think is, is a good person and loves God too, they're going to tell them about their faith and begin to talk to them. And all of a sudden, they begin to throw water on their fire. Don't let that surprise you. It's not just the pagan people who will come against you if you're on Team Jesus. There's oftentimes religious people as well. They'll calm it down, you know, don't, don't be so gung-ho, you know. You're, you're starting to become a little bit of a zealot. Like, you're joining a cult, what are you doing? Like, just take it easy, right? And they'll want you to be culturally or nominally a Christian, but not authentically fervent for the Lord. So don't be surprised by that. That happens sometimes. And this was coming at them. And he, said, he tells them in verse number 10, you've kept the word of my patience. Patience meaning enduring and suffering. You are remaining steady even in the suffering. Now here's what you need to know. There was a point to their suffering, and we'll see it in a minute. But for the time being, you need to know there's always, there's always a point to your suffering. Suffering for humans in general, but most especially for Christians, is never for nothing. There's a purpose to it. This is why when an animal suffers, we put it out of its misery. If a horse breaks its leg, then that's the last day of the horse's life. Generally, at least best I know. That's how the Westerns described it. I'm, I'm not a savant when it comes to horses. And we say that that's merciful or humane. But if a person breaks their leg, or even if a person is suffering terminally, we say don't euthanize them. Don't put them out of their misery. Don't, don't just make it end. We don't do that. Why? Why is it humane and merciful for an animal, but it's not humane or merciful to do that to a human? Well, part of the reason is that animals do not learn lessons from their suffering. Suffering doesn't teach them anything. It doesn't mature them. It doesn't make them better. But as humans, we understand that suffering matures us and makes us better. This is why the great novels and the great art pieces, if you go to an art gallery, many of those pieces will be informed and will be communicating the suffering that they've been through. Because it helped them and it enriched them. It taught them. Even the Greeks, who didn't have the Bible, but they were smart enough to understand this, they had, they had a proverb, pathumata mathumata, which means suffering is education. The suffering teaches us. It's never for nothing. There's an intention and a purpose to it. You say, what's the intention and the purpose? Well, you can read the Bible, and you can come up with about a dozen different reasons that you could suffer, some of which are it may mature you, it may grow you, it may make you into the adult or the Christian you're supposed to be. Some of it is Jesus suffered. He was a lamb that was slain. And as such, the Christian life is cruciform. The Christian life, actually, there is some suffering that goes with it. So it may conform you to be more like Jesus. Some of it, it may teach you that you are building your life on things that are silly. Some have called suffering the tides of life because the tides come in and they wash away the sandcastles that you've built. 
And sometimes we build ourselves little sandcastles and we spend lots of time on them. And financially, we have a sandcastle, and romantically, we have a sandcastle, and all these things. And then the tides of life and the suffering of life comes, and it wipes away your finances, or it wipes away that relationship, and, you, and you're left with, with nothing but a pile of sand. And you realize, I've built my life on something that's less than stable. And that's an extremely painful lesson to learn, but it's a helpful lesson to learn. To learn to build your life on, on the Lord Jesus and on something that is actually stable. So there's a lot of reasons why, but the point is that these people were steady and suffering, but they were also steady in their suffering. They were sticking to it, even though hard times were coming their way. And here is the primary reason they were suffering and the open door they were given because of their suffering. And that's the third factor you need to know. This is the sharing factor. Now don't miss this. You're going to miss the whole church of Philadelphia if you miss this. They were stable in their suffering, and this allowed them a gospel opportunity. Here's what it says. Now, it's very creative language, but it's beautiful. The first verse we read talks about Jesus, and it says, He, Jesus, has the key of David. He that openeth and no man shutteth, he shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works, and behold, I've set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Now, what in the world is that about? What John just did is John just quoted Isaiah chapter number 22. Now, I got to take you to class, and we got to learn a little bit before we apply it, so engage your brain. But we have to understand Isaiah 22 a little bit to understand what he's saying. Cliff note version of Isaiah 22 is there's a king named Hezekiah who's ruling. And Hezekiah has a prime minister, a man by the name of Shebna. And Shebna is a terrible prime minister. He's in charge of the treasury. He's been given the keys to, to basically be in charge of everything. And Shebna is out for himself. And he has no interest in the people and their good, but he only has self-interest. So instead of preparing the people for war that was quickly approaching, he decides to make himself like this ornate sepulcher and grave. And he does all this stuff. And he wastes money. And God comes to Shebna via the prophet Isaiah and says some really strong stuff. I'm going to paraphrase it, but he basically says, I'm going to crumple you up and I'm going to toss you into oblivion, is what he tells him. But then he also tells him that there will be a, a successor to Shebna. There will be a new prime minister. There will be a new person that has the keys. And this person will, and this is the quote that John gives us, he will open doors that no one can shut. And he'll shut doors that no one can open. And he'll be in charge of everything. And that this person, his name was Eliakim, that he would be a good prime minister. He would be a servant leader. He would be the one that would put the people first and their interests first, not himself. He would be the one that would be faithful. He describes Eliakim as this tent peg that is driven into the ground and is so rock solid and stable that you can tie anything off to him and he won't move and he won't budge. And he goes on to say that Eliakim will have great reputation and great honor. And John reaches back to this and he takes this description and he applies it to the Lord Jesus and says that Eliakim was just a prototype of Jesus, and Jesus is the one who is the true servant leader. Jesus is the one who is faithful and steady. Jesus is the one who is rock solid. Jesus is the one who has great honor and great reputation, and he's the one that's in charge of the keys, and he's the one that's in charge of the doors. Now, that's beautiful and wonderful, but then he says this. He says in Philadelphia, Jesus is opening a door for you. 
and nobody's going to shut it. What door? Jesus is going to open a door for you. No one's going to be able to shut it. He's in charge of this one. And actually, it's because of your faithful suffering. Now, what is this door? Now, there's, there's debate about what the door is. But the prevailing consensus that I agree with is that he's, when he says door, he's referring to an opportunity for the success of the Christian message. That he's actually leveraging the city's history and that they were a missionary outpost and that they were used to share good news or evangelize, that there's a, a new gospel and a new good news and new evangelization that needs to happen, and that this door is an opportunity for the Christian message. We know this because this is oftentimes used in the New Testament. This is what Paul would say about witnessing. He would say that a great door and an effectual door is opened unto me, but there's many adversaries. There's this door for the gospel. Paul would go on to say later in Colossians that we should pray for him, that God would open unto him a door of utterance so that he could speak the mysteries of Christ. What he's saying, and I'll just, sum, I'll just summarize it for you. Philadelphia, you're steady. You're steady in your suffering. And because of this, it's opening a door for you to be able to share Jesus and the gospel in ways you never would have been able to otherwise. Your suffering is never for nothing, and this suffering is going to give you a gospel advantage. Now, the reason I know that is because of the next verse. The next verse is this weird verse that you're like, what do you, what are the Jews in the synagogues? What does it have to do with anything? Where he says, there's Jews, and they're your adversaries, and they're against you, and they don't believe you, and they think that this whole Jesus stuff is, is a bunch of fluff. Well, what does he say about them? Verse number eight, or verse number nine. I'm going to make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Here's what he says. Your steady suffering one day is going to bring these people to a place where the light bulb comes on and they realize, I really loved you. And they're going to realize that what you said is true. In Philadelphia, I want you to know that one day the people that you thought were your enemies are going to join your team. And the people that you never thought in a million years would listen to you, the people that are ardently against you, the people that most hate you, those people are going to be melted and those people are actually going to accept the message and those people are going to gladly come and say, we get it, we're on the same team. That's what he's saying. He's saying your steadiness and suffering is going to open a door of gospel opportunity so that these people who you never thought in a million years would listen will listen. And that's what you don't need to miss. There are a million reasons why your suffering may come, but never forget that there are people that are in your family and there are people that you work with and there are people that associate with you or maybe they just see you from a distance, but they're in your orbit. There are people that will take note of how you handle your suffering and what you do when the chips are down. And when you handle that well, they will not only take note, but it will be magnetizing and attractive to them this message of Jesus that you have, even if they disagree with you. You know that person that's like, don't talk about Jesus around them? The one that you work with or the one that you just had Thanksgiving with? The one that's like going to breathe fire at you if you bring it up again? Like that one. That your suffering will provide a door and a window into the gospel that nothing else could have. You could have talked all you wanted. 
but how you handle those tough times is going to open something up. That's hopeful. That's helpful. Don't forget that when you go through tough times. The church of Philadelphia needed to know this, that there was something good coming out of their suffering. Last factor, factor number four, the security factor. This is kind of the end of the letter. Verses 10 and 11 and 12, it's all these promises and all this certainty. Verse 10, because you kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon the whole world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now simply put, there's going to be a worldwide temptation for all of the earth dwellers that you're not gonna be a part of. This actually is a tease to like the next 15 chapters of Revelation. We're about to enter into the new year, chapters four and five and six and seven and eight and nine and 10 and 13 and 14 of Revelation, which are these parts that, that make people's heads spin. There's all these trumpets and vials and there's wrath and there's judgment and there's all this stuff. And, and this is really what it's talking about. This great tribulation or temptation that's going to come on, on, the, on the world. And he says, look, you're on my team, so I am not going to make you go through that. More to come on this topic later, but this would be why we as a church, at least part of the reason we take a, a view that when Jesus raptures his church, it's before the temptation and before the tribulation, that it happens before that and we're spared from it. So if that doesn't make any sense, come back in January and it'll all make sense and we'll work through it together in a more detailed way. But it's a beautiful promise. It's a very securing promise. He goes on to say in verse number 11, I'm coming quickly, hold fast that which you have, that no man take thy crown. You have a crown, hang on to it, don't lose it. Verse 12, and this is what I wanna hit. Him that overcometh, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out. I'll write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is a new Jerusalem, which shall come down out of heaven from my God. When we get to the very end of Revelation, we're gonna see that. And it's just, I cannot wait uh, for, for those last couple chapters when we talk about this. And I'll write upon him my new name. Say, God is going to have a new name? Yeah. What is it? I don't know. We'll have to find out. It'll be a new name for God that we'll get. And here's the point. People that were fleeing this, this city to find a stable home, he says, I have a stable home for you. People that were scared that the temples are going to fall on their heads and crash them, so we've got to live outside the security of the city walls because it's not secure inside the city walls. I have security for you. I have a temple, and it's metaphorical. I'm going to make you a pillar. He's not actually going to make him a pillar. But I'm, I'm, the point is stability. I have residency for you. I have citizenship for you. I have permanency for you. You're exchanging your new name because you need to get some sort of financial advantage from this emperor and from this emperor and, and taking new name and new name. I got your new name right here. You're going to have my new name. I'm going to take care of you. All of it is meant to communicate security, stability, comfort, encouragement. I have you, church. That's what it's all meant to say. And he comes to them in their time of suffering and says, let this sink in, church. I am the one that opens doors. And people don't shut the doors I open. I'm the one who closes doors and people don't open the doors I close. I'm the true authentic one. I'm the holy unique one. I'm Jesus and I'm in charge. And I'm telling you, I have you covered. Everything's gonna be all right. How beautiful is that? Because 
don't every single one of us, I don't care if you are five years old in here today or if you're 75 years old, all of us want to feel safe. We marry those people because generally speaking, they make us feel safe. Not always 100% of the time, but generally they do. We lock our doors and set our alarms at night. Why? Because we want to feel safe when we go to sleep. We protect our social security number like nobody's business. Why? Because we want it to be secure and safe. And he says, you're looking for safety, you're looking for security. You're not going to find it in the earthquakes and in the people and in in the trials and troubles of, of this life. But let me tell you, ultimate safety, I got it. This is such a hopeful note. This, this is far beyond, see, life is glass half full. And I'm a glass half full guy. It's far beyond that. It's whether this life is half full or half empty, maybe it's all the way empty. The point is, this life is a vapor and there's a life to come and that ain't half full. That bad boy is overflowing. Like it's, it's going over the cup into the saucer and you drink from your saucer because the cup is overflowing. That's the point. Like this is, this is real And this is supposed to stabilize us. I can scan this room very quickly and I can see, I can think about this year and faces in this room. And there's a lot of hurt. A lot of you have had things come up in 2022 that were not on your calendar or in your plans. Job loss, not just job loss, but losing loved ones and people that you love. Sickness, cancer, relationships that exploded out of nowhere, that betrayed you. And I can't promise that 2023 will be best year ever. I can't give you a bunch of spirit sprinkles and just tell you, hip, hip, hooray, pom-poms, it'll be all right. I don't know. And God never promises you that. But what he does promise you is something better that this life is short, and if you're on his team, there's a life to come, and that's stable. That is sure and certain and something you can bank on and something that is wonderful. And while we suffer in this life, that is not in the future. That's the point. And I know that this is a letter written to Philadelphia. It's to them, but it's for us. He that has an ear to hear, which is all of us, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to what he's saying. Take it to heart and tell yourself, you know what? I can do steady. I can share my faith. I can suffer with a purpose. I can be hopeful. Those are things that the Philadelphian church had, and those are things that every church in every period of time has needed, and they would be us.